Welcome to the Experience Darden Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to feature a conversation I recently recorded with Gene Litka. Gene is the United Technologies Corporation Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School, and she is also the Senior Associate Dean for Degree Programs. She and I recently sat down to talk a little bit more about her background, uh, what brought her to Darden, what she enjoys about teaching here, why she's passionate about design thinking, and much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jean Litka. Jean, welcome to the podcast. It's terrific to be here, Brett. All right. So tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do here at the Darden School. Great. Well, my name is Jean Litka. And I am a faculty member here at Darden uh, for longer than I care to actually try and specifically count. Uh, but I have been here uh, for quite a while. I am a strategist by training. So after my own MBA, I work for the Boston Consulting Group, a pretty traditional strategy person. And at Darden, uh, for much of my time, I teach things like first-year strategy and an elective in strategy consulting. Uh, over the last 10 years, though, my own interests and my research have taken quite a dramatic shift that is also now reflected in what I'm currently teaching. So uh, I think about, well, maybe it's about 12 years ago now, we started a new research project looking at leaders of organic growth. So people who worked in large kind of bureaucratic organizations who, despite that, were really good at growing their business considerably faster than the market they were in was growing. Um, and of course, organic growth is a huge issue for business organizations. And we were very interested in figuring out what we could say to equip managers uh, with something really concrete and useful to help them grow their businesses. Well, out of that, we discovered that the behaviors and attitudes of these successful growth leaders was very different than that of a traditional manager. And as we explored that more and thought about, well, how do we at Darden help people who aren't naturally, intuitively oriented towards these special kinds of mindsets and skills that characterize growth leaders, how do we help them develop them? So can we take people who think in a pretty traditional way about business and help them to think in these new ways? Well, as we were searching for ways to do this, uh, this, this new toolkit called design thinking showed up. Um, people started to talk about IDEO. People saw the, show, the infamous shopping cart video. And so it started this whole conversation about design thinking uh, that was intriguing to me because I had been interested in design from an architectural perspective for a while and had been kind of following the work in architecture since I think thinking about what architects do is a pretty interesting um, kind of relationship to what business people do when they're making strategy. And uh, what we came to realize, just kind of through serendipity, was this set of skills and tools and mindsets and behaviors we were seeing in the design field mirrored exactly the natural behaviors of these growth leaders. So we started to think, well, maybe this is a set of tools, a way of approaching decision-making that we can take and teach to business people to help them grow their businesses. So that was about 10 years ago. We published a book on the findings of our research, and then we've been off and running. And so over the last 10 years, I've devoted most of my time, both teaching and research, 
to design thinking. So now I teach a, a second year semester long elective where we do real projects for organizations, both profit and social sector. Um, and then I sometimes when I'm able teach a first year elective in design thinking as well. Wow. I believe you also lead a darn worldwide course. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yes. I uh, have had the incredible pleasure for, oh, I think almost 20 years now of leading a, a, a worldwide course to Barcelona uh, where we study art and architecture and use it to understand what it takes to be a breakthrough creative thinker. So the focus of the class and the week is what can we learn from Picasso and Dali and uh, Gaudi about uh, about being more creative in our own lives. Well, your comments about architecture made me think about that course because I had a colleague who's been on the podcast, Taylor Fisher, who I believe yes. traveled on that oh, trip yes. with you. Had an incredible time. I think some of our listeners may be surprised to hear uh, that in a business school course, you're talking about Picasso and Dali and Gaudi and, and these kind of people. Yeah. And well, you know, creativity is creativity. And uh, what we find is that certainly when we talk about a pure artist, a Picasso or a Dali, it is different. They are creating for a very different kind of audience and the kind of execution part of the creativity is really just a function of their own skill. Whereas as we move into architecture and then into business, we're really looking at a kind of a more collaborative form of creativity, and we're looking at relating what might be to what actually can be, given the capabilities of the time. Um, so my favorite part of Barcelona, of the Barcelona trip, is the focus on Antonio Gaudi, who is the very famous Catalan architect, who is the architect of Sagrada Familia. Uh, which I just think is the most amazing space I've ever been in in my life. And so over the last 20 years with the students, we've watched Sagrada Familia go from basically a couple of walls with an open ceiling to now a consecrated finished church that is a forest. I mean, it's just one of the most amazingly creative uh, things you'll ever see. And we believe either whether you're talking about business or the social sector or architecture, that what's really interesting is where possibilities meet constraints. So how do we imagine a new world that's different than today in dramatic ways and yet do that accepting and being realistic about the constraints we have in our environment? And of course, Gaudi is the ultimate impossibility thinker. He designed a cathedral that essentially would not really be able to be built technically for almost another hundred years. So there's lots to talk about and lots to bring back into our own environment as leaders and how we both find in ourselves and nurture that kind of creative spirit and also how we help others that look to us for leadership find it and create an environment that's conducive to them practicing it. Wow. So let's talk about your first year uh, course. So you teach strategy. You had mentioned that you have taught strategy to first year students. Yes. That's um, a required part of our core curriculum. Uh, what do you enjoy about teaching first year students? Well, first year students are wonderful, of course, because they're just getting to Darden and it's all new. Um, by the time we get them in strategy, uh, we're towards the end of October. 
early November. So the initial shock of entry into the Darden system is over, and they're kind of acclimating. They've gotten to know the people in their section, so they're a little bit more comfortable. And uh, it's just always a great conversation. And uh, I always look forward to it. I mean, things are very different in the second year. Things are even kind of different by the fourth quarter of the first year because people are a lot more confident. They're a lot more relaxed. Um, but there's kind of an edge to the fall of the first year at Darden that makes it an especially remarkable kind of environment for learning. Yeah. So what attracted you to Darden initially? You had mentioned that you had, had done strategy consulting, consulting and you've been at Darden for a while, but what sort of gave you the nudge to come here? Well, I guess I was surprised to find myself here. I came here as a visitor at the invitation of Ed Freeman. Right. So, well, anybody at Darden can talk about Ed. I don't know if you've gotten to have him on the podcast yet. Unfortunately not. He is on our list. I'll though. bet he is at the top of your list. Well, El, Ed is just, you know, a force unto himself. And when I was a doctoral student, Ed was one of the advisors in the area that I was doing my doctoral program in. Um, and uh, at the time, I was teaching at a small college in Boston. I was very happy there. I have to say my own MBA experience, which was not at Darden, was not a particularly positive one for me. And so I didn't really have any desire to go to a top business school as a faculty member. I had this kind of notion that it was kind of an uncaring, impersonal, devaluing kind of place, honestly. Uh, but Ed invited me to come to Darden for a term. Uh, because I had some free time. And I got here and I found out that my stereotype of business schools of what they were like did not apply to all top business schools. And that Darden was actually a very caring community type place, uh, where, where, you know, we live in community. I mean, we follow that whole Jefferson notion that learning occurs in community. And I was just very drawn to that aspect of community. I think it's what makes Darden quite distinctive. I mean, I went to a big city MBA program where everybody kind of scattered and went home to their apartments at night. And you really only saw people when you were in class with them. There wasn't a lot of a sense of community. Whereas Darden, I mean, one of the beauties of Charlottesville is a small town. And we see each other a lot. And so uh, you develop relationships that are very different than the kind of relationships you're able to develop in other places. So so Darden has always been, um, well, it's always been where I knew I wanted to be once I got here. I've never really been tempted to go anywhere else. I, people call and I say, you know, I'm very happy where I am. This is the place I belong. And so uh, I feel very lucky to have been able to spend so much of my career in this environment. And so uh, this past year, you've taken on an increased role. Uh, we were talking before the podcast. I want to make sure I, I get this right. Uh, you are the, the, the dean for or both the full-time MBA, the executive MBA, and the MSBA program, sort of overseeing all of, all of those programs? Yes. I am technically the senior associate dean for programs. Uh, so all of the various programs uh, fall technically under me. Now, we have amazing people like Tom Steenberg, who uh, runs our residential program, amazing people like Jim Dietert, who run the EMBA program. So, I mean, the reality of it is I get to kind of do the 
the fun stuff like think about the future at Darden and what are, what what are the what are the challenges facing business education and where should we be headed next and what are the new workforce skills that we need to be equipping students with and all that kind of stuff because there's all kinds of other wonderful faculty who really do the kind of day to day operations and strategies of the individual programs. What an incredible opportunity for someone with your skill set to think about these things. I think there's been a, a lot of commentary about sort of the future of MBAs, what's going on in the market right now. I think from an admissions standpoint, we feel like you know there are students out there that are questioning, you know, should I go get an MBA right now? Will this be necessary for my progression mm-hmm. in my career? Um, must be interesting to think about how to help the Darden School grow. Yes. I mean, it's an interesting kind of time in MBA education, there's been kind of this perfect storm of a very healthy economy, so people have a tendency not to leave work. Um, I think a demographic kind of blip in the U.S., so we're seeing some some uh, some flattening there. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of craziness internationally that's making students more reluctant to come to the U.S. sometimes than they were before. So uh, I think it's challenging times. Uh, for the top schools like Darden, I think uh, there will always be 350 really awesome, interested people who want to come here. Uh, but I think we all have to recognize that the world around us is changing. And to be a successful organizational leader, whether it's in business or the social sector, the skill set's changing and morphing. And we need to be out in front of that at Darden. And so I think that's that's part of the excitement. You know, it's the, it's like the old uh, crisis opportunity thing. Um, yes, uh, there's some outside pressure to make us look at things differently. But there's also, I think, just some tremendous possibilities for how we build on all of the strengths that Darden has and the strengths of the students we attract and really begin to pioneer some new directions in uh, in leadership and business education. That's, that's very interesting to, to think about all of that. So I'm sure you've given some thought to, to the skills. You mentioned that it's changing, you know, if you're going to equip your graduates for the current current landscape. Uh, what are some of those things that you that you think are must-haves or, you know, important skills for people going forward from here? Well, probably the most obvious one, of course, is data analytics. You know, we live in a world of data and figuring out how to use the massive amounts of data we've got with all the computer power we've got intelligently and thoughtfully, I think, is uh, is a big issue in today's world and one that, you know, all students are interested in and concerned with. Um, but it's funny. I think that almost the opposite set of skills is also urgently needed in the future. For instance, we know that artificial intelligence is going to take over a lot of the kind of more rote skills, even some pretty highly paid ones, right? And so it's going to be people who can work with the human dimension and who can do what computers can't, which is things like respond emotionally to the needs of the people around them or innovate and invent new things. So those other skills, the kind of emotional intelligence work to help people be better leaders, the innovation work uh, in areas like teaching design thinking skills. I think those are also going to be critically important. So so those I think would probably might be my big three, emotional intelligence, 
innovation and data analytics. Um, and they, they don't all, they aren't all equally comfortable probably for the same kinds of people, but they're all extremely important moving forward. When you think about the Darden educational experience, and Darden is a place that thinks a lot about how students progress through their time here from, you know, pre-matriculation to first year, second year, how all these pieces fit together. How do you think the experience is, is helping students develop some of these skills? Well, one of the things that you learn when we go to Barcelona immediately is that if you look at, at uh, a Picasso who literally invented cubism, what you find is he built that ability to invent on the foundation of the mastery of the fundamentals of painting. So one of the most dramatic things is we go to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona where you get to look at the work he was doing at 12 and 13 and 14, and it is extraordinary. His mastery of traditional painting was amazing, which is something we don't associate with Picasso. We think you just jump into cubism, you know, from nothing. Um, but you don't. You build the fundamental skills and you use those skills as a foundation to innovate in new directions. And in the same way that Picasso needed to master traditional painting to invent cubism, uh, what we believe at Darden is that students need to master the business fundamentals in order to lead in interesting new directions. So, I think one of the differentiating factors of a Darden is our emphasis on the core curriculum during the first year, um, both in terms of its content and in the formation of community. I mean, what people discover pretty quickly when they get to Darden or even if you visited a class is a lot of the most important learning happens student to student, not faculty to student. Right? The faculty's role is to facilitate a great conversation. And so that's a process learning too. And so I think the, you know, the first year, especially the fall of first year and early spring are really dedicated to, to a deep understanding both of these fundamentals and how we learn together. And that allows us to open up first in the fourth quarter of the first year and then throughout the second year into students exploring whatever customized pathways make the most sense for them. I think about the emotional intelligence piece, just how much you interact with others during your time here, that this is not a back-of-the-room passive educational experience. You are fully engaged in class, and you have to participate and contribute to the conversation. You have a learning team, people from different backgrounds than your own who may think about problems differently than you do, and just all the collaboration that's at the heart of the program. Yeah. And, you know, I think we sometimes underestimate how much deeper the learning is when we discover it in conversation ourselves and with others, right? I, I was, uh, when uh, a good friend of mine in the faculty, Professor Susan Chaplinsky, who teaches in finance and particularly in the area of private equity, she always talks about her transition, transition as a faculty member coming from Chicago, you know, University of Chicago, one of the ultimate, um, you know, economics, Nobel Prize winning economics faculty that she worked with, teaching in a very traditional kind of lecture method, these, these, uh, this, this finance. And she said when she got to Darden and, and was immediately presented, well, we teach by the case method. So you don't lecture. I mean, we, give students situations, and we talk through together how they think they should handle them. She said initially, she thought, how is this ever going to work? 
right? It's finance. You know, we're not talking about leadership or strategy. We're talking about finance here. Um, and what she said is pretty quickly she learned that it actually worked better than the lecture method, that the understanding of students developed in that conversation was so much richer and deeper and more thoughtful than it would be with a faculty member kind of lecturing at them about the subject. So so that has always been, for me, a confirmation of our approach to learning here, that, you know, if it can work in finance, it can work everywhere else. <laughs> I also think about all that you learn about your classmates during those case discussions and obviously learning team meetings and you know, to your earlier point that this is not a transactional experience. You're not just coming here and going home, that you are a fully integrated community member of the community and you bring your whole self to those to those class discussions. Yeah. It's it is crazy how many learning teams get together at the thirtieth reunion. <laughs> Right. I mean, uh, people stay, some people at least, they, they just form this relationship with their learning team that lasts the rest of their life. It's really, uh, it's really an amazing phenomena. I think we know that we have just about the most dedicated set of alumni of any business school. And, um, I think the reason we have them it's because it's such a transformational experience that people go through together here at Darden. And the kind of, I think, bonding um, you do with people going through this experience, just, you know, it builds relationships for a lifetime often. One of the things prospective students oftentimes wonder about is when they hear people talk about the case method, they hear that the faculty member is the facilitator in the room. And they wonder, well, what's the preparation look like for the faculty member to go in and sort of facilitate it as, as a part of that class discussion? What's, what's your preparation look like? Uh, it's so funny. Students would never believe this, but it's probably a ratio of about five hours of preparation to every one hour in the classroom, particularly in the first year um, where we're teaching as a team. So we'd have different sections. Each section would have their own faculty member, but we're covering the same material. And I think an important part of Darden is the integrated curriculum that's consistent across the sections. So I actually spend more time in planning sessions with my fellow faculty members before a class than I ever spend with students. So we'll often have a three-hour faculty meeting among the people teaching in each different section to talk about our approach to the to the to the case what's important what we hope students take away from it um and then you know to spend one hour and a half class session with students so uh so i guess it would be nice if we could think that all faculty do is kind of wander in and ask some provocative questions but you know the bad news is we're working just as hard as the students are uh in advance to make that a good discussion so are you thinking about the, the many different angles that could come up in, in a discussion of a particular case? Or you're saying these are the three or four points we want to get across? I'm curious, what, what's happening in those faculty discussions as you're preparing? I mean, oftentimes, and I think this probably varies with the temperament of the teaching team and the faculty leader of the teaching team, but in the strategy first-year sessions, we'll often come out with a timeline. You know, 15 minutes into class, we want to have gotten here in the conversation, right? What are the things that will get us here? What's the opening question that we're going to ask the students to address? Um, where do we take that, right? At the 30-minute mark, where do we want to be in the class? And so 
it's a highly um, – it may look like it's completely informal when you're experiencing it on the other side, but we've got pretty tight alignment on what we'd love a class to look like. Now, of course, you get into a class, it's anybody's guess where it's going to go. Right. It can go in completely different directions that can be wonderful. And you want to be ready to go with those. But at the same time, you want to be sure that the fundamentals of that day's learning happen in the room. So we talked about some of the things that you're doing for the Darden School right now, sort of thinking about uh, the future of of the school and preparing students for for what's ahead. Um, What are you researching? What What are you working on right now from a publication standpoint? We've got I've got two major re- research streams, both of which I'm very excited about. Um, one of them relates to kind of assessing the impact of using design thinking. So it's kind of the ROI question: How do we assess whether or not the investment organizations make in learning design thinking actually pays off for them? Uh, there's very little work on that. Design thinking is research is really in its infancy, so a lot of the work has been qualitative case studies, and in fact, that's what our own work has been. You know, we've published multiple books of stories of organizations using design thinking from the government of New Zealand through to healthcare centers in Australia, through to the U.S. government and IBM and 3M and large organizations. Um, but at some point in business, we like quantitative numbers. So we've been working hard to think about how we bring a more rigorous quantitative assessment to the impact of design thinking. We've created a new instrument. We've been testing it for the past six months or so, um, and it's producing really interesting results. I'm, I'm, I'm working on the first draft of a paper. My co-author is at the University of Georgia, and uh, and it's it's funny. We we think traditionally about design thinking as a way of producing more creative solutions, but in our preliminary data, the single most prevalent outcome observed is building trust. So in that way, you know, design thinking is less about just coming up with better ideas and it's more about creating a conversation in which we build trust and engagement and ownership. Um, and it's also about, for instance, a set of individual psychological benefits. So we're seeing that the methodology gives people a sense of psychological safety to encourage risk-taking. It gives them a sense of creative confidence. It helps them to be more open-minded to different perspectives at an individual level. So we're, we're witnessing these very interesting outcomes at the level of the individual and the team and the organization and even the systems. We're looking at, at network capabilities and how they're built through the use of design thinking to work across these diverse stakeholder groups. So that research, um, very excited about. It's really exciting. Uh, the other research in design thinking that's equally interesting is we're looking at how people learn design thinking who are not designers by training. So almost all of my focus has been on helping non-designers learn the design thinking tool. So whether those are business school students, whether they're physicians, you know, whether they're the scientists at NASA that we've worked with or engineers, whoever it is, how do these people who've been trained in more traditionally linear analytic methodologies, how do they learn design thinking? What are 
What are the places where they get very uncomfortable and encounter problems? What are the places that feel good? And as an educator, how do you help guide them through a process that maximizes the likelihood that they will develop competencies and then use these new skills? And so we're turning out some very interesting personality differences in the way in which people uh learn design thinking and how it works. And it's interesting because what we find is at the end of the learning process, everyone has kind of converged on a very positive high moment. But the path to that moment is radically different across different personality types. And I think that's an important part of doing this work. I mean, it, it can be very uncomfortable kinds of learning for some people. Now, those are the people who benefit most from it. So a lot of our attention here at Darden, both in the classroom and in online. And we've had some very exciting kind of developments in the online space here. But the real issue is not how you take people who naturally are creative and love this stuff and teach them design thinking. It's how do you take those of us who are accountants by training, that's me, and teach us design thinking. And so we're, we're finding some very interesting uh, outcomes in that research as well. Well, those both sound very interesting. I imagine some of our our listeners are like, gosh, I want to learn more about this design thinking stuff. Uh, what would be some next steps you might suggest? Well, one of the things that we've done is to create a whole suite of online materials around design thinking. Um, design thinking is primarily not a case method approach to teaching. So I don't mostly teach cases in any of my design thinking classes. It's very experiential. You're working on real projects. Um, and so the experiential project-based nature of design thinking really lends itself to online because you can deliver the learning real time when someone needs it at each particular phase of the project. And so, um, so we have at the most fundamental level created a series of Coursera courses, one on design thinking in business, the other on design thinking in the social sector, uh, that, you know, over a hundred thousand people have taken wow. over the years. Uh, we also have a much more in-depth, more sophisticated, um, uh, program with a certificate offered through our executive ed online. So, uh, so there's lots of opportunities, uh, that we've created to learn design thinking. For me, it's very important to think about how we make learning these skills inexpensively scalable. Because I really believe that in the way, in the mid, uh, in the, it, it, you know, in the mid 20th century, we realized, for instance, that quality was something not done by experts, but instead needed to be something that everyone in the organization owned. I feel that we're at that place now, making that same transition around innovation. There's still some myths, I think, in the in the in the marketplace that you know innovation is all around what I call the Moses myth, that innovation is done by this set of kind of extraordinary, saintly like completely different group of people like Jack Ma and Steve Jobs and Nicholas Tesla, um, and that the rest of us don't really have a role in innovation. And, and I think that is, one, completely inaccurate. We know from 10 years of research in this area, everyone has the ability to innovate and to tap into that creative energy that we all have. Um, uh, but some of us need more help than others. And so, uh, so we're kind of pretty passionately committed to making design thinking something that becomes a basic organizational competency, something that everybody in the organization does. Because 
everyone at every level has an opportunity to create better value for the people they serve, whether those are frontline customers, whether they're, you know, the people in HR, if I'm in accounting, uh, whether if I'm the CEO, it is around creating new business models. At every level, we all have a role, but in order to build the confidence and the competency, we need this new skill set. So, Gina, I typically wrap up with the, the same last question, and we've kind of talked around it or at least talked a little bit about it. Um, but what would be your wide Darden pitch? A prospective student you know, shoots you an email or gives you a call or you run into uh, someone here at one of our visit days, and they say, well, well Gene, why should, why should I come here? Why Darden? Well, I think for me, when we think about – when I think about myself as a, as a faculty member – One of the most profound things I learned about teaching early in my career was that the best teaching affirms who people are and challenges how they think. So it's a place that's a safe space where people feel a member of the community and they feel like they can explore and not worry about necessarily getting the answer right or other people thinking they're stupid or anything like that. But it's also a place that stretches people, that challenges them out of their comfort zone, and that maybe puts them on the spot um, in ways that they perhaps haven't experienced before in their life. And so for me, that's the why of Darden. It's this goal that we have to challenge the way students think while affirming who they are. And that's the combination of challenge and community, I think, that's really our distinctive why. Now, that's not for everybody. I mean, everybody doesn't want to be a part of a community, right? And everybody doesn't want to be challenged outside of their comfort zone. Um, everybody doesn't want to have to participate in class, right, in a room with 65 other people, right? These are These are not comfortable spaces for a lot of people. Um, and for people who don't want that, Darden isn't the right place. But I think for people who want to spend their time being challenged and still be part of a community that genuinely cares about each other, I think Darden's kind of unique in that way. And I feel very good about being part of it. Well, Jean, know how busy you are. You obviously have a very full plate. Um, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. Great. It's been my pleasure. And that was my conversation with Gene Litka, the United Technologies Corporation Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School, as well as Senior Associate Dean for Degree Programs. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.